Welcome to the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. For the second time in the history of this show, I have had technical errors happen to a, a longer episode that I uh, kind of wish you would be able to experience the, the full version of. Uh, it was meant to be a two-part episode um, celebrating the music of Ennio Morricone with my friend Lee Beckman. Unfortunately, some of the sound files did not work properly, and the six movies we were reviewing, only three of the re reviews actually turned out. Instead of abandoning the episode completely, I've decided to release it in an edited form with the three movies that we talked about. So some aspects of this may be a little bit choppier than uh, we'd like, and I do uh, apologize for that and apologize for Lee for this happening. The three movies uh, that we didn't get to review will later be reviewed in other episodes of the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. I still hope you enjoy the episode, and there's some spoilers for the movies and some coarse language throughout, but I hope you appreciate and can celebrate the great movie music of the late Ennio Morricone and enjoy the reviews of the three movies that we end up talking about in this episode. Thank you. Welcome to the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. I'm your host, Jason Dubray, and I'm really, really excited to welcome Lee Beckman back to the show. He's absolutely one of my favorite people to talk movies with, and we don't get to do it as much as we used to. Living Aww, in. That's pretty sweet. We certainly follow your posts on Facebook and, and the movie stuff that you post. Thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me, man. We decided this was back last summer when it was about the week that we lost uh, Ennio Morricone. One Ennio. of the one of the great film composers of all time to do a tribute show. I don't think it's often that you would have a tribute show to a film composer, but mm -hmm. maybe we should a little bit more often because they're so important really to the tone and the feeling and the emotional impact of movies. And I was, we're just in the middle of so much loss each day, even, but that one, I don't know. It impacted me, even though he lived to a pretty decent age, but mm -hmm. I've grown to appreciate his films, but I always appreciated his music in the films. And so I, I just mm -hmm. wanted to highlight him and in some ways we end up also highlighting Sergio Leone who is his major collaborator on spaghetti westerns and beyond how have you felt about his music and his contribution to the history of film? Well, uh, I, I think the word iconic is is um, definitely suitable to Ennio Morricone. Just not only from the the, the the spaghetti westerns, but well, we're going to be talking about the, you know both like you know the Untouchables. You know, you play that harmonica once again, <laughs> to tone and right away, you know it's the Untouchables. But for my money, though, I would have to say, and I and I was going to ask you this question. I think his best score and one that's not talked about at all. I, 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 well, maybe not best, but definitely my favorite is Wolf. His oh, score cool. from Wolf is, you know, very haunting. It's not bombastic or operatic as such like his other films or his other scores. It's, you know, haunting and subtle at times, which is not a trademark of Enyo. <laughs> so, I just, yeah, if, if you you know if you had to put a gun to my head and say, you know, say like my, the one Enyo Morricone uh, score that I come back to a lot is the one from Wolf, which is a decent film, but the score is great. I wish there was a bit of a resurgence for that movie. I, re I Again, I was first in line to see that the weekend it opened, I believe it was 1994 in the summer. Yep. And it was a very satisfactory movie and that's one some people sh should check out. But you're right, it, it's not the score that everybody thinks of. Which is, if you had, a, if you had to, what is your trademark Morricone score? 
Well, there's the trademark, and then my favorite, okay. I guess, would be, would be different. The trademark, I think, with the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's such a famous, that one particular section of music is so famous. But I actually find that I, and I, I appreciate what he does for Westerns, too. Mm-hmm. But I, I like the non-Western scores that he does. Going back to the subtle idea, this isn't my favorite necessarily, but I don't know, for years, I just really didn't clock the fact that he did the score for Bugsy. Okay. And that's a really... When I listen for it, I, I I get it a little bit more, but I didn't clock it as being, as you said, one of these scores that's very much a part of the movie. You're aware of the score. It's not subtly in the background, but I, I felt in Bugsy, it was. It had real energy at it at some points, but then it also kind of dealt well with the sentimental, emotional moments in Bugsy. There aren't a ton of them in Bugsy, but there are a few in there. So that's another one that I would shout out. I, I've already reviewed Bugsy on the show because I thought about it for this show at one point. His score for the thing is also completely uncharacteristic yes. of Monikone. Like it's yeah, I mean once again it's not operatic or bombastic. It's it's very much well the ostionato it's 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 brilliant but simple at the same time. And it also fits within Carpenter's aesthetic. So no, Morricone was a master in that regard. Yeah, yeah I mean, he, he's forever linked to Sergio Leone, but he worked with some of the great directors. And I mean, his aesthetic works really, really well. Brian De Palma, mm-hmm. as you said, some of the untouchables. Mm-hmm. I have a tough time picking my favorite. I think I'd, I'll say this now, and then probably by the time that I release this, I'll be like, what about that one or that one? I do think the mission is, if I just want to listen to one piece from him, mm-hmm. I, I, I will put on the theme to the, the mission. feels like an obvious answer. Yeah versus Wolf or Bugsy or or even The Thing. Well, The Mission is also a film that I think time has forgotten, which is sad because I'm not mistaken. Yeah. It was a Palme d'Or winner, was it not? I believe so. Yeah, it's very critically successful, up for several Academy Awards. And uh, I should say, we're trying something a little bit different. This is the first time I have done this. I, I like this idea. We're going to film this episode in several different sittings. Is there anything else you want to say about Morricone before we go into uh, our reviewing? No, I, I think that the work speaks for himself just looking at his body of work though and and all the people who he worked with um, is impressive he was especially in his later life he was very very picky yes he was and apparently didn't speak a whole lot of english either no he when he eventually did win his competitive academy award Mm. i think they had an interpreter up there because he yeah he couldn't he couldn't speak english through maybe he could but he just didn't uh, feel comfortable enough in public here are the maracone films that we are going to be reviewing on this show. We're starting off with Once Upon a Time in the West. Take a look at Brian De Palma's The Untouchables, as mentioned. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to end off with Once Upon a Time in America. And that was, I believe, uh, Sergio Leone's last film and his last collaboration with Morricone. So, Lee, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me.
I did a, an episode with my buddy Tom Ratzlaff where we actually reviewed movie trailers and we looked at westerns first mm -hmm. off. And among the many that we reviewed in the show was the trailer to Once Upon a Time in the West, which mm -hmm. I reviewed quite favorably. And it's a film that is so big. And we're talking about a lot of big films. It looks like an epic. And I think by this point for Sergio Leone, he was feeling very comfortable painting in bigger strokes than, say, A Fistful of Dollars, which I recently reviewed with Larry on, on his show. Mm -hmm. And I think there are some really good things, but I also think there are some things to criticize. It's about several, it's an epic, several different characters. Jill McBain travels to the wild frontier of Utah, where she and her new husband had planned to settle down. As soon as she arrives, she finds him and his children all murdered. There's a lot of land and potential, but there are those who want to take it from her at any cost, even if it means killing a man and his kids and kind of a, a brutal sequence at the beginning. And I mean, a who's who of people in this film. We could go in several different directions here. So I'll just start off with you. What what are your thoughts on Once Upon a Time in the West? Well, Sergio Leone has made a, a meditative fairy tale. Yeah, it's, it's the same universe that the good and the bad existed, but this is far more operatic. This is a operatic mm -hmm. fairy tale than the the Man with No Name trilogy. It's also it, it's also very hazy grit filled with aesthetics of browns and blues in its operatic setting. But sadly like all fables this genre has a pattern of forgetting certain viable voices or narratives. I'll get to that in a second because I, I, I do overall want to say that it's a well made film. You're going to either like you'll know I guess there's a scene in the first 10 minutes that I, I think sort of sums up a lot of what the film whether you're going to get through this or not anyways like there's a 10 minute credit sequence where this ruthless gun for hire finds joy in capturing an intruding fly in a gun barrel and finds a quick solace and this fly has been obsessed with his resting scowling face and when the man finally captures the fly he resists the urge to kill it yet he does capture it it's both a, like a tender funny and leone is a strong enough filmmaker to just let the camera focus on this expressionistic actor who looks like he came out of a, a apocalyptic wasteland flick. Mm -hmm. This movie loves its atmospheres and wide shots, but it also moves at a snail's pace. It's slow. Yeah, the average viewer will finally grasp the overall story after the first hour, but <laughs> that first hour has some drawn-out, atmospheric, long-shot, well-put-together sequences. And the traditional Ennio Morricone score is there, but for the most part, and it's iconic, and it has that you know that harmonical musical piece that like that, that most is the most famous one. It's problematic, though. <laughs> I mean, I knew, I get what they were trying to going for, but it's one of the narratives is by far the most interesting and most nuanced. And the other two, we know where the one is coming from, and they and I sort of think they kind of dropped the ball a little bit with the revenge story. <laughs> and the yeah. other one, the other character, Cheyenne, he's interesting, but his main objective was to clear his name. And so the stakes aren't that much higher. I think the main problem <laughs> of that movie is the female and it's poorly written it's, it's just totally off <laughs> It's um, not I think she's quite good, but the really I, I had her as a, on on the plus column of my of my notes here. Okay. I, I don't think she's a very a very fleshed out character, but I mean she actually is the one who has the power. Yet her power is regularly taken away from her. Like one of my biggest problems is that rape scene. I, I'm gonna yeah. call it a scene with uh, Henry Fonda, and this is I, I don't know if this is a plus or how you feel about this. Henry Fonda was a hero in pretty much every movie. He 
he was in. Except yeah, no, no. He's the big I, I, I get the whole wow factor of, of you know, usually uh, an, an actor who does hero roles doing the reverse. I get it. I, I, it's like the whole Harrison Ford effect from What Lies Beneath a little bit, I guess. But yeah. But that that whole sequence, I thought it was it was basically a rape scene, but they made it out to be consensual, and it was that really sticks out now as being. Uh, I, I don't think it's consensual. I think she's just knows how to survive, and and Fonda knows this. He's he plays with her the entire time, but her whole story arc, like I said, it's the most interesting, and she has the most to lose. But how she's portrayed, and it, and it and it's not her fault. I think she's honestly miscast, or if they were going to use her, she had to be instead of this like sultry interpretation or, or sultry performance because she is you know there's no there's no real grit to her. She needed more bite, and I'm not saying that Claudia Cardinal couldn't do it, but it just all the beats are wrong with her. We're, we're supposed to buy the, we're supposed to buy some sort of romantic romantic or sexual tension between her, Jason Robards and Charles Bronson, and like none of it is earned. None of it is earned. All the men treat her badly in this. Like look at it from her point of view. Like she's a prostitute. I mean, granted from a swanky New Orleans brothel, but still, you know, a, a, a prostitute, and she looks beautiful. You would imagine that even though like she's a, a high a high class one, that there'd be a, a couple of little scars or something. And her only chance, of, you know, sort of a normal life was, you know, this man who, of course, visited her, but wanted to, you know, take her away and marry her out in, in, in Utah, no less. And when she finally arrives in, the, in this wasteland, her, her whole family, her step family is slaughtered. So that's really done away. And then all of a sudden she's got Charles Bronson, Harmonica, coming out of the shadows. Jason Robards, you know, she believes at first that he's the killer. He shows up and wants coffee. And, yes. you know, then there's Henry Fonda. So her whole story arc is just all wrong. But I honestly, I blame the writers, which are Dar Dario Argento, Sergio yeah. Donati, Leone himself, and Bernardo Bettolucci. <laughs> we talked about with Last Tango in Paris. Well, yeah, but honestly, if you if you kind of like change the sequence a bit, there's a scene near the end of the movie. Where's that line? Basically, where Jason Robards, you know, Cheyenne comes up to her and grabs her butt. And what was the line that he said? Make believe it's nothing. He like grabs in the butt and makes believe it's nothing. And this is right after this sort of Charles Bronson or you know harmonica character looks at her romantically, and she you know is supposed to feel this romance between them, which is completely unearned. She is like beaten, spit upon, like everything at every nothing good happens to her in this movie. No one treats her well. You know, from her from her angle, it like this is it's almost a horror movie in a lot of ways. Start her story from that angle and then scaffold into like her coming in and seeing the family she's supposed to, you know, live with, you know, up, you know, with all lined up, you know, for the grave and everything. Like nothing good happens to her. And she is like it, it's just not believable i'm not saying recast her but make her like a little grittier and a little harder in a lot of ways like i, I kept on thinking of holly hunter's character from the piano yeah uh, they're sort of similar like they're being whisked away from across the world into kind of almost like a forced marriage position a kind of slavery even like 
this character we're meant to believe will not survive will not survive without some sort of male figure in her life and that in its own sort of way is kind of like this weird slave kind of relationship and this is supposed to be like a fairy tale kind of thing i don't know it just it rattled me in a lot of ways and it really just comes from the script none of her beats really seemed all that authentic like she comes in angry when jason rabard you know cheyenne first comes in i would have portrayed that as her as completely and utterly terrified so it's just every beat of that character is unauthentic i couldn't i didn't buy it and i think maybe what they thought they were going for there that she is grittier or tougher than but she's not no i i get those points i mean definitely for and i think sometimes a little bit with sergio leone films they look better than they actually are mm-hmm. and she fits well in that the aesthetic of the film because i mean really when you take take a look at the cast for all, all of his films we have a mix of people from all different parts of the world speaking yeah. their own languages and then they're reworking through the dubbing everything and you get a real mixed bag of acting when that happens in you know it, the advantage of the clint eastwood films is that clint eastwood would be kind of in there centering some of this yeah. so that you could autocorrect for a lot of the other actors who are hamming it up way too much or the, the like the really awful dubbing where we get that i find is through we hope to get it through jason robarts i don't think we're mm-hmm. very successful at all i think he's way 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 too over the top i actually think he really no of the leads he gives the worst performance in the film in my opinion okay then we have yeah charles bronson i actually think he's very good this is a good role for him but he doesn't give a lot as an actor so you can see no but 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 that's also like this is all sergio leone like if when you're sitting down to a sergio leone especially a sergio leone spaghetti western you're gonna have these long shots where you're reading a lot of men's faces and so Bronson, you know, fits perfectly within that aesthetic. I mean, it's a little cringy that he's supposed to be playing a Mexican, an indigenous Mexican yeah. character. And that's, once again, a ball they dropped I, to make that a lot more interesting. We're still struggling with this in 2021. So, I mean... Yeah, well, no, but uh, originally it was supposed to be Clint Eastwood for the role. I think he wisely turned it down. I, you know, why why have it then? Why have the, like, the reveal at the end where it's, it's two indigenous Mexican kids? Or not, we're Mexican. Well, no, they're both young Mexican men. Why do that? And I've already on another episode about another movie brought up this issue. And I found with Bronson, at least he, I didn't see him playing a stereotype. No, 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 no. Yeah, none of that. No. Okay. But it's still, I'm not, I'm not advocating for it. I, I think, I think he actually gives probably the best performance in the movie. Fonda, I think was probably, like Robards is a very good actor. That's why I was shocked. I was just shocked at how much I disliked this performance. I, I had watched it before and loved it. And this was yeah. diminishing returns for me for some reason. I don't know if I was in the wrong headspace when I watched it or what, but I, I was mm-hmm. picking a lot more holes in, in it this time. I think Fonda and Robards are probably the two best actors in the cast. Mm-hmm. But Robards was was hamming it up so much. And I don't know if that was just kind of because of the nature never, of the really, Yeah. I never really took him as over the top. None of the, I never, none of the characters characters really had like these gigantic long eloquent monologues where they're like oh yeah 
I'm a devil. There's, there's none of that. I never thought it. I think Robert usually associated with, you never see him a, a, as a leading man in a lot of things. He's a character actor. So I, th I thought he did well. I bought the relationship between between the two. Yeah, I never had a problem with, with Robards. I, I mean, I didn't particularly care about his character, but that's a, that's a different thing too. Well, his motivation is, is by far the least interesting. He's there to clear his name. He, he seems very much amused by everything. Makes me wonder about how, you know, whether he really was, how they ploy at the end where where Bronson gets $5,000 for quote-unquote Judasing the Cheyenne character, which ultimately ends up leads to his death. <laughs> I've never seen Roberts as charming as he is in this movie. I thought he was he was oh, charming. Yeah. He, was the rogu he was the roguish character. He's the hand solo of the movie. I guess I like him in perhaps the more realistic films. All the President's Men type of thing, or you know, his nasty, nasty, horrible character in Philadelphia, like roles like that. I actually liked him. Some other people didn't like him in Magnolia, which was mm -hmm. one of his last roles. Wait, how do you feel about Henry Fonda? I thought it was it was good for him to play a villain. I think yeah, yeah. Um, he, he was he was great. Uh, I don't think he overplayed it. No. I cut you off. Sorry, man. No, no, that's fine. I could be sort of if I was interested in his story a little bit more. I suppose I could have clung on to him. Like if you have a very charismatic villain, he, he was a villain. I'm not sure he was all that charismatic, but yet I I did feel like. In some ways, some of the criticisms we're having about the connections and like the romantic connections, if he'd been in a different role, that he it'd be more of a cliche-ish type of, of casting, I suppose. But mm -hmm. if he had been in one of the other roles, I think we wouldn't have been having as many problems. Maybe we still would have with the uh, Claudia Cardinal part of the story. I almost feel like the the movie is is great to look at. I mean, the shots are amazing. I love the music score. I love just the scope of it. The mm -hmm. final shot of the railroad. It's I, I like that opening sequence. You're right. A lot of people won't have the patience for the first 10, 20 minutes of the film. But you'll, it, know, you'll, know by, yeah, you'll know by then that th this is what the movie's offering. It's, you know, for film buffs, it's it's a well put together, you know, shot sequence. And you have to know that you're when you're sitting down to a Sergio Leone joint, you're going to get these long operatic sequences where you know you know the white hat and the black hat eventually mosey on up yeah. to the final gunfight you'll have long sweeping shots of mountains soak up the atmosphere all the leone indulgences whether you like them or not are on full display here but how do you tell because at this point leone was very much a well-respected filmmaker how do you tell a, a successful artist hold back just a little bit hold <laughs> back yeah. you, you don't need it this much that final it takes forever to get to the harmonica the the bronson peter fonda showdown which we know it's coming yeah. for the longest of times it takes forever ever <laughs> to get it's there good. it's good well, it's, it's good yeah I, I agree i agree i love the scene where you know where fonda comes up to harmonica and he knows that he's defeated like at this point the fonda character is actually terrified and he's probably th this is the first time in a long time that he's been actually scared because he knows that no matter he's tried bribing this character he's tried killing this character he's tried all these things and he like he realizes at this point that death is is here death is on the doorstep and he knows it and that fear in his eyes right then and there it's such a well done scene between bronson and fonda and i believed everything that to me and that's the start of really that long sequence <laughs> 
uh, of these two finally coming together and, you know, all is revealed and, yeah. you know, the showdown happened. Fonda was great for me, man. Like, he, he did his job. Like, I was kind of reminded, uh, you know, of, of his son's performance in The Limey. They're sort of, you know, the yeah. same thing where they're both slimy and slick and he realizes uh, that he'll never be the mayor. Yes. You know? and, and even that, even and even the mayor knows this, you know, you'll, you're just not that kind of man. He is impeccably cruel. Like, when he finds that mayor the you know the mayor character who's still a, a bad guy anyways suffers from spina bifida i think it is or what is it yes, that's right, yeah. and he sees him crawling on a puddle and he just watches and leaves him like doesn't have to do anything in fact shooting him would would, would have been a merciful thing and he, even then he doesn't do it so now it's the mayor's fault i mean he he brought this on himself but yeah well they both did really like every every and i think it's part of this was i believe the start of the leone's second trilogy which was supposed to be like the evolution of of America yeah. and also kind of the I think a comment on the corruption of America was kind of each, each step in there the one I haven't seen I've tried to just a failing on my part I haven't seen Ducky Sucker or A Fistful of Dynamite the, oh, okay. the, the middle piece in there I want to see it so I can kind of evaluate the whole trilogy but the bookends that we're talking about in the show I, I've watched multiple times I'd say of, of those two uh, not to spoil my review of Once Upon a Time in America I'll go back to this one more than Once Upon a Time in America I think there's enough to like just the look of it and uh, there's a it has all the everything you could want in a western but mm. you can see how Quentin Tarantino was very very influenced by Sergio Leone mm. he you know that the violence is coming but you have to wait and be patient for a mm. long long time and both filmmakers are also ones that as you said nobody can really say no to them at this at least you know for Tarantino right now and I think mm. yeah at a certain point maybe good the bad and the ugly onward nobody could say no to Sergio Leone with if he had an idea of how how something should be yeah but I think Quentin is smart enough though that he can pace his movies pretty well for better much, much better yes I yeah. mean I granted his giant loving homage to Leone the hateful eight is also a it's a marination <laughs> that's the, yes. that, that's the way I, I I would describe it well, there to, it's meditative and, and marinating once upon a time in the west I, I I'd recommend it. I wouldn't steer people away from it. Film fans, I think, will get more out of it than if I was to <laughs> recommend this to like a one of my 16-year-old students or something like that. I, mm -hmm. I don't think they would get very far before they would give up on it. Well, no. I mean, like you, you know, I think to the younger generations where they love their movies with you know a certain kind of stimulus every so many seconds, Yes, um, this will be a challenge. But at the same time, I think for people who love film and filmmaking and can have, can have appreciate it and have the patience to enjoy long shots whether it is just an actor dealing with a fly or looking at beautiful mountains i do love the attention to detail of the sets you know like the the building of the railroad life i do i did yeah. chuckle that the bandits cheyenne's bandits are the ones that help construct it that made me laugh but you could trim a couple of things and i know right and it's easy to get the extended version now like the the, the european cut if you will apparently the american version cut down 15 minutes you could trim some things 
and it, it still be this sort of fable-esque meditative. So it def definitely needs an editor, but how do you tell Sergio Leone, no, Sergio, just cut away a couple of bits. Its biggest fly, I will say, is by far making, and I say this as a compliment, but the most intriguing story arc is, what's the character's name again? Jill? Yeah, McBain. Yeah. Jill McBain. Her storyline is by far the most nuanced and at least the most intriguing to me. It's just every beat she does is completely not real. And it, it just, it took so much away from me. So it's kind of like, it's structurally and technically it's well made, but you needed to sit the other writers down and say, okay, no, no, like none of this works. Wasn't a deal breaker for me. And I think she fit well into this aesthetic of, of the type of film that he would make. So we were coming different places on this one. Well, I mean, it, it's, it's, I hate to say this, it, it, it's so male, but I'm not the only one that, that kind of thought, you know, I've just looked at Roger, even Roger Ebert, who I think we both was a very good writer and reviewer even mentioned in his early review that it's played all wrong and I, I i think it's just the conception of the character the you know the casting of it if you're going to do that kind of storyline just make it grittier make it, it it's it, it's too much of a fable but leone never wrote women well anyways like the no. same thing with, in a lot of ways him and michael mann are the same thing you know, have the same problems where they make great technical films that are very very long but their female characters are just like they are literally puppets for the male characters characters and that perhaps more egregious in once upon a time in america and yeah like well none of the characters treat her very well like no yeah sophia loren is who he wanted to get yeah um, but yeah but it, even like I, sophia loren like you you'd have to make her tougher and grittier like the I whole thing the pouty like no i guess she, claudia cardinal was a friend of his and i guess that's how she ended and i'm up. not saying that she wasn't talented it, 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 like i said this this falls at the hands of leone and yeah. the other filmmakers themselves it's just it's none of it works one more thing and not to besmirch but i think it's already happened with bernardo Bertolucci. yeah i guess he wanted her first scene for her to not be wearing any underwear oh of course because that's exactly what bertolucci did and i guess he was able to get away with it in the generation he lived in but now we're finding out more and more stuff and wisely Sergio Leone said uh, no to that or he listened to his actor anyway a uh, little bit mixed I, again I, I like it I don't love it yeah
So as much as we're doing a tribute show to Ennio Morricone, uh, I think it's worth acknowledging that we did lose Sean Connery last year as well. And uh, we're talking about Brian De Palma's The Untouchables. Yep. And this was the one and only time that uh, Sean Connery was nominated for an Oscar and he ended up winning Best Supporting Actor. Some may argue this wasn't his best performance of his career, but I'm, I'm glad he got acknowledged. How long has it been since you last saw The Untouchables before this? Oh, man. Um, years? I mean, the film came out, came out in 89 and I saw it probably roughly the first time around then. It's been probably... From start to finish, actively watching it, probably 10 years. But the, like, the film has been on I mean, Netflix or on TV, and I'll, I'll catch it sometimes halfway through just to watch specific scenes, but probably at least 10 years. For me, it had been a long time, and I, I'm not sure my memories of it were as great as it was this time, because when I watched it this time, I was actually blown away by it, about how much mm. I liked it. I can't say there was a whole lot that surprised me, but it is such a well-made movie with yeah. an outstanding cast, and I, I just had such a great time with it. So as much as I was a bit lukewarm with Once Upon a Time in the West, whereas I was anticipating that to be just an amazing experience again, and it was okay. Mm. This one was way better than I was anticipating. So that's where I'm coming from right now is from a very positive place with The Untouchables. There are some things here or there that could be improved, but on the whole, I, I really like it. What do you think about The Untouchables? Well, somewhere John Ford and Howard Hawks are, smile, are smiling. Yeah. Like on one level, Brian De Palma is The Untouchables. It's, it's a simple white hat, white hat, black hat, supercharged Western disguised as a shoot 'em up old time Warner Brothers gangsters picture. It's hugely yeah. operatic, bloody, full of testosterone and that and that beautiful De Palma style. You know, like the detail of every shot, you can tell that you're in the hands of multiple craftsmen. Yes. Uh, and it's very energetic. The sets are uh, beautiful. The casting is pretty special spot on like it's it's just yeah. right and then you know i mean we are doing a show about ennio morricone and that score it's it's beautiful you know morricone reminds us how important musical scores yes. are very important for thrillers and horrors john carpenter once said that after the original cut of halloween with no score he had a very boring movie of people just walking down halls mm -hmm. and then that infamous score was added and, and what was born was a horror classic and then the same can be said of the untouchables like right from that opening number like the strength of the righteous is is the title of that piece and it starts the viewer on a thunderous drum and a haunting harmonica which of course calls back to his score of yes. once upon a time harmonica's character it also readies the viewer for a bloody intense odyssey de palma's strength on creating beautiful shot sequences whether it be that creep that creeper sequence involving malone's death you know and that song is called the man with the matches or the battleship potemkin inspired chicago train station shootout with machine gun lullaby i get they're just enhanced by Morricone's score it's such a beautiful intoxicating mix both de palma's skill at creating you know just these grand sequences and the music even that gunfight at, at the end and like this is when really the movies you're thinking is starting to slow down and it just speeds up again that gunfight on the roof yes with you know and that score on the rooftop like that each bullet is dangerous i love when frank nitty played by billy drago was perfectly cast that that shooter really reminds that you know bullets are dangerous Ness shooting the hat off drago you know was great and that score like like it, it just it, it's really really haunting uh, that's one thing about watching it this time i forgot 
how tense that movie is. And it is mm -hmm. that score that just amplifies it to a T. It's not a deep movie. I mean, I, I, I guess that's one criticism I can have. Like, it is really, it is popcorn entertainment. Yes. And, like, all of the Untouchables, I mean, say what you will about Connery. It's a tailor-made role for him. Mm -hmm. uh, but he, he's Sean Connery. And, and Ke Kevin Costner is, like, the whitest of white, pure as the driven snow character. I mean, yes, eventually he becomes corrupted and had, you know, has to do the things that his character is compromised. They're not that deep. But each character gets a moment to shine. I am reminded how good De Palma is, though. Uh, little things, like he definitely understood the Charles Martin Smith character, Wallace. He kept on wanting Wallace to have these little comedic moments, whether it be like, you know, with the pipe or even like after the shootout on the bridge, he takes that little sip of alcohol from the barrels and little, little humorous character beats that just keep on building up and building up that when spoilers, his character is killed, you like, you feel it. It hurts. Yeah. And yeah. that's then, and even Charles Martin Smith was like sort of resistance to all these little sort of comedic little add ons that the poem was doing. But he said, but he's De Palma. I'll have to trust him. And it worked. Like, <laughs> You go, no, and our Canadian boy, Martin Smith, gets it. And that's credit to De Palma. Like, you are in the hands of a master. He walks a tightrope, and that's because he loves his operatic style. And sometimes it works like this, and sometimes we get snake eyes. And... <laughs> I don't mind Snake Eyes, really. <laughs> Snake Eyes has a great 10 minutes, and then it turns into this befuddled mess. <laughs> but, I mean, that film was compromised from execution, sadly. But, I mean, that that's the thing with De Palma, is that, like Cronenberg, he's so operatic, and it's a thin line. And sometimes it, like, it, it, sometimes it works, and you need strong actors to do it. And sometimes it just, it's, it's, it falls flat, and it's too much. So, it's a really, really good movie. But a lot of a lot of talent came together at the right time to make it successful. Great costumes by Giano Armani. I'm sure I'm saying that name wrong. I will say this though, and it's not De Niro's fault, but I could see why people were disappointed with him. I, I don't think I minded De Niro. He's not the, which is weird for Robert De Niro not to be the performance I think of immediately when I think of The Untouchables. Yeah. Um, I think in a subtle way, Andy Garcia is very, very good. They're all and, good. Like, that's the thing. Yeah. Like, and they're all up to worse. Like, Costner was not that well-known at that point. That was, De Palma hesitated to cast Costner just yeah. because he, he was considered a nobody at the time. He'd been in yeah. Silverado. I don't think anybody saw his, he was the corpse in the big chill, but nobody saw his face. American Flyers, no. He was he was a young and, and, and upper-comer. Honestly, like, besides Sean Connery and Robert De Niro, Charles Martin Smith was actually the bigger name at the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, which which makes me smile. But yeah, no, uh, every, everyone's perfectly cast. Honestly, my biggest gripes with the movie are the David Mamet script, and, really? and it's yeah. Look, there. It's and once again, it comes back to Capone. It's not his fault, but the Capone character is complete, almost completely separate from the rest of the characters. There's only two scenes where Costner and De Niro interact. Same with Sean Connery. It's like, he he is almost a completely separate entity from the rest of the Untouchables, and it feels a little jarring. Yeah, yeah um, the is everything that they're doing. I mean, the Capone, what he does, and the corruption, and then. The, the world of Chicago he's created is the reason that the whole story happens. In reality, of course, Elliot Ness and Al Capone never met each other. They no, and this is a very fictionalized... Here's yeah. the thing, though, man. You get Robert De Niro, yeah. and you get Sean Connery, and even, like, Kevin Costner. 
and you're paying them good money and like De Niro was getting paid good money. You work some more scenes together where, where they face off. If you're going to, if you're going to use Bobby De Niro, you use him a lot more and have a couple and, and say to David, look, I need a couple more scenes where they're physically with each other. So it sort of feels like a dropped ball a little bit. De Niro is fine. I mean, he put on weight and some costumes and he's definitely menacing. Like I said, it's not his fault, but I could, like, I could definitely understand why some people were 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 disappointed with Al Capone and Bobby De Niro. It's hard because, like I said, this like this is a supercharged, stylized John Ford Western. Even like the, the Canadian Arizona scene, uh, which is sort of a, a breath of fresh air, as De Palma said, it, it's showing its roots pretty easily. So you're not going to get deep, deep characters, but use De Niro better. I think it was something like I said, it's not his fault. Mm-hmm. Use and, and I say this because he's got that great baseball scene. He's got the scene in court. If you're going to hire Bobby De Niro, use him, make him, yeah. make him earn his paycheck. Yeah. And I think they only had two weeks with him. He was yeah. between films and, and it sounds like he did the prep work. I mean, he, he oh, got yeah. no, 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 no. same tailor that Capone had to make his costumes. He apparently wore the same underwear that Capone did, did all the method stuff that he normally does. Yeah. I think he's interesting. I always had it in my head too, that he wasn't fantastic. Yeah. But I, I love how De Palma shoots him and, and those facial expressions. And he, he's doing a lot of interesting stuff. But you're right. He probably deserves a bit more screen time. Yeah. That, that would be fine. Like, they really did concentrate on the four the four white hats, I guess, if you yeah. want to call them that, in, in their stories. De Palma, getting back to that point you made about snake eyes, right? Yeah. And De Palma. I, De Palma, he himself admits, there's his documentary about him, that mm-hmm. he had a best before date. And he thinks all filmmakers actually have a best before date. Yeah, Tarantino's talked about that, too. I think he was reaching that. He was still very, very competent and almost in the middle part of his career. I think he was working towards Carlito's Way. Mm. After Carlito's Way, it became a real mixed bag. But wasn't the in touch? No, Mission Impossible was after um, Carlito's Way. Yeah, that that was um, ninety six. Mission Impossible and The Untouchables, and they're the most popcorn movies he ever made, really, were his mm-hmm. two highest grossing movies of all time. And I, I like Mission Impossible. I don't mm-hmm. love Mission Impossible. I like the series. As a series, it's kind of an interesting action series. But I think, you know, Carlito's Way might have been his last great film. But I will still watch his movies because mm-hmm. there's something, even though he borrows and from Hitchcock and all of these different sources... He still puts his own signature on every movie. Mm, mm. That great shot, and he used it so well in Carrie, and he uses it in the church scene where we have one 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 character kind of in the focus, and the other character the blurry focus like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like that effect that he uses. The entire like uh, train station scene was completely conceived right then and there. Mamet had a. Uh, a whole sequence involving uh, trains, but it was so yeah. expensive to try to to execute that sequence that it never did work. And the fact that he created something, even though it was inspired by previous examples of the same scene, it's amazing. Yeah, it, it did. It did make me sort of smile a little bit. I mean, I know it's it's heavily influenced off the battleship Potemkin, but yeah. I, when I when I discovered that that he essentially created the shot sequence on the day or the days of, mm-hmm. it does make me go, "Wow, that's that's impressive." because it is quite the scene. 
And once again, with that machine gun lullaby score by Morricone, it, it's like it's great movie sex. I'm yeah, sorry. Like, if anything, like you know, if I had to do like a, a thesis statement, Untouchables is great movie sex. It, 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 it no, it is. It's like anytime, anytime people want to be like savagely critic, I almost want to go shut up. It's the Untouchables. Like, I don't care what you think. The score is great. Shut up. You don't like it? Like, you're wrong. It's like, you think Sean Carter's playing himself? I don't care. It's the Untouchables. <laughs> You don't like Brian De Palma? I don't care. It's the untouchable. Well, maybe we'll get to Connery in a second here. I know I know the criticisms of this and also the criticisms of the Academy giving him the award for this, but I kind of don't care. Like you're saying, yeah. I, I, I kind of don't care. He does play it really well. And that yeah. you referred to the Charles Martin Smith's death. Yeah. Connery's reaction in that particular moment, combined with the Maricone sc- score, I know it's a for your consideration type of operatic yeah. moment, but that's what we get with De Palma. I feel exactly what Sean Connery's feeling at that moment, and yeah. that wasn't a flashy moment. Plus, the other thing is Sean Connery did not die in his movies. Yeah, right? and, never been, he'd never been used scripts before. Yeah. I, I laughed at that story. And his death is, it wasn't, they weren't going to kill him easily. And De Palma knew that, and, and I guess Mamet, you know, I don't know if they worked a little bit, extended that a little bit, but it, it's such an epic death, well shot and put together that, you know, it's it's a worthwhile death for somebody who, in most of his movies, wouldn't die. Yet, it sounds like he was on board with the project from the beginning. Yeah, he wanted to do a David Mamet script, and then yeah. when he, Palma was connected to it, he was yeah. like, I, I'm all in. If Sean Connery wasn't all in, I've heard it was a very, very difficult experience on set. De Palma also knew how to direct. Oh, uh, I know. Like, you were reminded about how good De Palma is with yeah. The Untouchables. It's not my favorite De Palma movie, but from, like I said, the opening, like, from the, the shootout at the the end because like, i love that sequence oh, so, so much and the train sequence the you know the mounty sequence i love the build up and and that score as well no like there like there are so many moments where you are you are reminded about how good de palma is and how suspenseful that movie is so like ultimately we can sit and say these things about it, but I come to the conclusion is like I don't care. It's it's the Untouchables. It's it it's it is it is a popcorn classic. Even the death of the girl uh, of the young girl at the beginning and De Palma is good is is great for that for setting up our focal point and knowing that disaster is going to happen. We see it with the girl in the beginning and and Frank Nitti leaving the suitcase and which makes the baby carriage scene even more terrifying. <laughs> Because it, well, it sets the stage that De Palma and Mamet are not afraid to kill off children. So then we, you know, we jump even still with the bullets hitting the baby carriage. You're like, Ew. what's going to happen in this? I mean, yeah, I, I imagine the first weekend sitting there seeing the thing and you just don't know what's going to happen. And this is the director of Scarface and Carrie at this point. So he's not afraid to go there. No, it's it's yeah. bloody. <laughs> yeah. And this was actually when there was, a, there was still plenty of blood. He brought the red. He always brings the red. Wasn't yeah. as much red as, as some people thought he might. He, he actually held back in the Charles Martin Smith sequence. He was supposed to. It was supposed to be a bloodbath, and he kind of said, "Yeah, let's have blood, but not." Yeah, not he, his head being blown off or something like he. Yeah, would've. he said it actually because the 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 set and the props department. The uh, he said created too much blood in the <laughs> elevator. I'm like, really? Well, I mean, this is the man that did. Scarface and dressed to kill, but okay. Yeah, no, it, it's great. And yeah, and the blood is dark, dark red. I love the transition from 
Capone beating the head in yes. uh, of one of his lackeys. And then it cuts right to Elliot Ness's daughter and the mother character played by Patricia Clarkson praying. Like it's it, it, you just like, wow, this is so black hat, white hat. It is kind of funny in that regard. It's, it's um, clever though. I mean, altogether, the, the editing, the, the photography, I don't know if that was Mammoth's choice in the script. I know they changed a lot along the way in yeah. Mammoth's original script. So as far as like, I never know when to blame a writer anymore for if there are some flaws in the script because so much gets changed on set. And somebody like De Palma has the power to be able to, tell David Mamet we're not doing this and we're changing that well, um, money also is a factor I mean yeah. they could own, like they could uh, apparently like the inclusion of De Niro bumped it up by like 10 million dollars yeah. originally Bob Hoskins was supposed to play Capone and like had was signed sealed and delivered but De Palma and what is described as a rarity says I'm not going to make this movie without Robert De Niro and yeah. he left the meeting and the studio you know caved in and and, and did it I yeah. think it was a, I think it was a smart decision though in some some context. <laughs> it's hard because I know Bob Hoskins can definitely play menacing if you watch The Long Good Friday. I do think that the script kind of failed the Capone character somewhat, though. I also like Hoskins in a movie called Mona Lisa. I actually think yeah. he should have won Best Actor for that and yeah. had those elements, even though there's a bit of a lighter touch to that character than Capone would have had. A couple of other things I want to say, first of all, about Morricone, and, and you've already kind of made this point, but the actors talked about the post office sequence where they're they're catching catching them with the you know the illegal booze where Connery convinces them to just kick the door down and they thought it was kind of a blah scene they didn't think it was gonna play that that well and apparently got cut down quite a bit but when they went to see the movie a little bit ahead of when it was released and the Morricone score was on there they were like oh this is actually a great scene mm. something they thought wasn't gonna be a great scene I think that's what Morricone did for this film it had a lot of energy and testosterone as you said and would have anyway but from the beginning he just his score brings so much energy to this film and works so well with De Palma's style mm -hmm. I'm not I, I think it's an exciting sequence but I'm not really a big fan of the Canadian border sequence. I know everybody likes it because you get out of Chicago and you do something different with the story. Like the Canadians are portrayed as idiots. And again, I'll try not to get too personally offended by that. But I also just don't think it was that wonderful i mean I, it was fun for the actors to go on horseback and with their guns and have this big shootout on the bridge and all that but and it was an important moment because that was again the steps towards charles martin to his character's death but one thing i want to say that is clever in a way even though it's not completely true in mammoth's screenplay is he kept suggesting his character as the accountant kept suggesting throughout we need to take a look at capone's taxes he hasn't paid federal yeah. taxes and that's ultimately, in reality, what nailed Capone and showing that even though that the gentleman who actually did that had nothing to do with Elliot Ness and the Untouchables. Yeah, this is not history. Like, this no. is a dramatic, fictitious retelling of that story. And I think most people know that. I think everything in the cabin, though, was great. Even it's, Connery's it's interrogation. <laughs> it's a good setting. Yeah, the interrogation had some weight to it. Yeah, yeah it was like little moments, but I, I just, uh, I don't I don't know why I'm so lukewarm on that sequence. I, I understand why people do like it, but... They make fun of Mounties, whatever. Like... <laughs> I don't care. Like, like I said, once again, this this is a white hat, black hat style of <laughs> of storytelling. So we're not we're not going to get deep. The Mounties, whatever. It, it it didn't bother me. I love Charles Martin Smith and the Bridge. I love <laughs> the Sean Connery interrogation. <laughs> 
can't talk with a gun in your mouth scene. And he doesn't get to clean himself until after he talks. You know, like, as much as I'm hard on Mamet, and that this is the guy that did Glengarry, Glen Ross, Ronan, Wag the Dog. Like, that's that's the thing. When you're, when you, when you're usually here, you're going to be very, very hard. And I, I find myself battling because I, I'm sort of, you know, now it's the weak link. But then I sort of think, shut up. It's the, untouch- the untouchables. I don't care. You're wrong. And this was so. early Mamet in some ways. I mean, Glengarry, I think, was just just on, I don't know if it was off-Broadway at this particular time. He had written the screenplay for The Verdict and had been up for an Academy Award for that. The Verdict's so, really good, yeah. You know, he was an established screenwriter and, and a playwright at the time. I'm just not sure that he was the god that David Mamet is today. He was pretty powerful at that point. This is 89? Yeah, uh, 87. So Is it 87? Yeah. Well, I know Speed the Plow had, had been out at that point. I think Glengarry had been a stage hit. When did he win the Pulitzer? It was for Glengarry. Yeah, so 87, the movie came out. Probably 86, they were filming it. And we have to look this one up. One of my favorite plays, I should know this. But yeah, it premiered in 83, so yeah. So it was, yeah, so Mamet was pretty, was, was pretty, pretty powerful. Yeah, no, I think we're, we're both positive on it. I mean, I, yeah, it's a bit, it's a formulaic Hollywood popcorn film, but yeah. I would I would never steer anybody away from it. And no. I, I think a lot of people would be interested in seeing that who have missed it to this point, just to see this wonderful cast put together by a master filmmaker. And The Untouchables is going to have quite a few more points than I was expecting it to. Uh, no, like, like, please understand, like these are small pickings here. Yes. <laughs> part, of me, part of me at one point, like the lizard brain of me wants to go shut the fuck up. This is The Untouchables. <laughs> like really it's a review though it's a review but it's as, as gangster flicks go like th- this is actually kind of a throwback really to those old warner brothers public enemy style yeah. gangster flicks it's just really really supercharged i do believe it's an american classic for a reason
Lee, I've been running into a problem recently with movies that I'm watching either for my podcast or for rank and review where they're movies that I know I'm supposed to like and I've always been lukewarm on and then when I've revisited them recently I've it's gone to the point where I really really don't like them okay and perfect example of that is Once Upon a Time in America okay. I, I feel like this is an important movie that I am supposed to love and revere as much as like Godfather or a Goodfellas but it really is not that it's an epic and no doubt it's an epic and i know there's many versions of it out there there was a disastrous american release which was two hours and some and cut out some really important stuff that kind of led to its early failure until video rental and that kind of thing kind of saved it uh, a bit but it's about essentially uh, jewish gangsters growing up in new york and it shows their childhood it shows kind of the prohibition time when they kind of make their money and then a kind of a convoluted plot which flashes to the 1960s where robert de niro and i'm not gonna say anything bad about robert noodles. de niro yeah he plays noodles david noodles aronson and he comes back to apparently arrange for his fellow gang members who were shot down in this bad robbery to displace their their graves or that's what so he thinks but there's somebody there who from his past that's a little bit of a mystery that knows who he is and is trying to hire him for a job so there's a lot of stuff to this movie and i think you know you could almost review the three parts i think what it comes down to for me the problem is the writing because it's sergio leone and five other italian writers writing an american epic about jewish gangsters and there's something lost in translation throughout so no matter how many and you have some really good actors who show up in this movie but no matter how good they are i don't think any of them can save the film from being what it is this movie start to finish felt like homework for me and i don't know how how you feel about it so that's where i land on once upon a time in america it represents both what's good about sergey leone and his problems i liked it a lot more than you did but could definitely understand where you're coming from you haven't given really told me what's the lost in trans the translation part but how characters talk to each other i mean it's it's like silly silly dialogue stupid threats things that there's a, a whole section in there this big sequence where uh, a bunch of babies are are stolen out of a hospital which felt like it was in some sort of a broad comedy it re really in everything about the childhood sequence no not everything i kind of like and i don't know if it's just because i like jennifer connelly this is her first role so she plays that young girl yeah, it I don't know. First role. yeah it was her first role there were, i could tell right away that there i, I know why she had a career because there was something there i mean she had kind of a a wooden line delivery at some points but she was good but everything about the like the the flashback sequence to when they were kids i was not very well acted or, or or well handled you know i that there was that prostitute character that is not very well handled i don't think the women you mentioned in an, one of our earlier reviews that sergio leone is not very good at writing women yes uh, that's 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 part of my main complaint michael mann's the same kind of way he's good at what he does but michael mann's dialogue though doesn't hurt 
my ears. Yeah, yeah no, I agree. Yeah. I agree. But man's also not above writing very clunky dialogue as well. But it's, I don't know. The, the dialogue didn't hurt me in this. It took me a while to really realize we are not supposed to like any of these characters. Uh, we are, they are villains, all of them. And the Nero in particular, I mean, he, he more than once rapes a woman. Yep. Yep. It's, it's, and he's our protagonist was, apparently. Uh, it, it's very misogynistic as bad as the, well, I don't think the first scene's a rape scene. I think this is going to sound awful. Um, it, it's yeah. More of a, uh, she, she implies that the whole robbery sequence sexually incites her and yes. that it's up to interpretation and I, and I feel awful saying this it's presented as she likes the rough sex and I could buy that per se, but the second scene is, but the second scene involving noodles and his longtime love, it, it's, it's a rape scene and it's really, really hard to watch. Elizabeth um, McGovern, who yeah. I, I like her, like there's all these faces of actors that I really like, but are, it just feels off. Okay. Another complaint, and maybe this is a picky one yeah, for the Deborah character. The Deborah character. Yeah, Deborah. Yeah, Elizabeth McGovern, who is the older version of the Jennifer Connelly character. Another complaint, and again, maybe this is unfair given when the movie was made, but when we get to that third, even though they intersperse the sequences, but the old age sequence. The makeup. Uh, yeah, I am totally puzzled as why is Elizabeth. McGovern not aged a bit, but then De Niro and Tuesday Weld in particular has this thick, thick makeup. I mean, it's not well thought out. I mean, for a movie to be considered a masterpiece as this one is, there's a there's a lot of, of issues with it. Well, they put some gray in her hair and they wrinkled her up a little bit. To me, uh, uh, to me, I'm just going with the technology and with what they had. That's not going to throw the movie. For me per se i mean this is 84 there's going to be subtle makeup then make it subtle for everybody yeah. if it's going to be big prosthetic makeup and make it that for everybody yeah i think um, they were trying to keep her as the love interest in the she's the uh girl next door or whatever and through the entire film and so they wanted to make her look more attractive than she's a weld in the last part of the film and so that's why it was done differently but they're all around the same age and it looks like there's a 20 year age difference between elizabeth mcgovern and, and robert de niro right possibly look i i, I i'm going to respond to the execution and the story i have not read read the book the hoods which is based on so i'm going to go that everything that's in the film was in the book I like the mystery angle of it and how the mystery is sort of reached over, even though the mystery takes place in our sort of modern day narrative thread. Yeah. Uh, the clues to the mystery are definitely scattered throughout the different narratives through the timeline. I thought with the kids that that was really engaging. I think the mystery involving noodles when he comes back is engaging. Nothing left me bored. Like I was thoroughly engaged. Really? Yeah, I was. I was bored uh, throughout the whole thing. Oh, no, no, no. Brutal. no. I, I even like the book ends, is it or is it not even true? Because you could argue that this is all an opium dream done by noodles. And it, once again, we get this sort of fable-esque aesthetic, just like in Once Upon a Time in the West. So I was thinking, you know, is Leone here really talking about what is real, what is actual legend, and what is not? Because this is really done through noodles' eyes and what he perceives. It just took me about halfway through. And, I, and when they get to the scene where... 
they've seen that woman from the robbery before she's in that brothel house and the men decide to cover up their faces again and whip out their genitalia and she's asked to guess which one she engaged sexually i went okay we really are not supposed to like these people and so that's i think that's the one thing i would tell the viewers that you know much like the godfather even though you're asked to go on this journey with these characters these are villains like these are criminals and to be wary of that like the like you know these these are people that will stab each other in the back will you know are so awful at intimacy they, they, they don't know how to properly communicate with each other but there's always this doubt on is what we is what we are seeing actually true or not and it's important that it's really told through the eye of noodles and not that i see noodles as it is an untrusting care like untrusting narrator or guide but he is a criminal he is a drug addict and just to be wary of that he's, he's kind of like an edgar Allan poe protagonist slash antagonist where we have to be kind of doubtful on what we see he can't even trust his own eyes you know we, we see uh, a burning of a building and bodies you know being strung out and of course we more of that is explained as time goes on about what really that is so we have to be careful with what we're seeing and question is this true or is this noodles seeing what he is seeing and what is the actual truth i there's even the whole like spoilers Max is the one that is behind everything. I don't think we should have been too surprised by that. I wasn't. I, I was actually, I think yeah. it's, it's, it's a stupid plot twist. Anyway, and, and we see we see a younger version of Max near the end. And I thought, is this a dream sequence? No, that's supposed to be Max's son. I, yeah. I think this is actually a stronger story. It's more a more difficult story to digest. The rape scene did take me out of it. And at times I kind of wondered, why is this here? But then I thought, okay, if we're dealing with this triangle between Max and Deborah and Noodles, this obviously comp complicates it. And I just, once again, I, I I haven't read the book, but I imagine it's in it. These, all these people existed. Yeah. Um, they, they, I mean, these are fictitious versions of it because it wasn't a, it wasn't a, a, a biopic of this, this gangster it was an inspiration for the screenplay okay well i'm just going on this is based off the book the hoods which apparently yeah. is based off a true story but in the film itself you you are to question what is real what is you know and what is not and and how america is known for blowing up their legends in a lot of ways the the, the hero complex it's a troubling film and, it, and it's a complex film. I do feel for Elizabeth McGovern or for a lot of the ladies uh, in this movie, they are really not given a whole lot to work with. No. Uh, they're just basically sexual objects kind of just for the use of the characters and that's been done over and over and over again so i, I kind of wish they were given more james wood is very good in a slimy role uh, brings some energy to it yes didn't you know it, it, was, it was good for good for them i enjoyed the mystery angle of it i mean i'd seen this movie before long long time ago so I knew what was coming that, yeah. you know, Max was in it all along and that he was crazy and wanted to die. And I think he even knew that noodles had set up, had sold them out when that robbery even long, long ago. It's definitely epic. It's long, but I didn't, I wasn't fighting it. It never really dragged for me, but it's a hard film to digest. It's ugly. It, it, it's ugly. It, it's, you know, these are not nice people. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
And I have no, no problem with that. I mean, I like a lot of movies with very unlikable characters. Yeah. What I have trouble with is boring characters. Okay. And I, I do want to address, and then I do want to get to some positives because I, I know I'm coming across as super negative on this movie. All right. But this is what I'm fighting with because I feel like I'm supposed to like this. And, yeah. I, and it's just an honest, subjective. No, uh, you don't like it. You don't like you. it. I, I would say the rape scene, while it takes us out of the movie, is necessary because it, it does show, like, in De Niro's character, his world is, oh, he's gone to all this trouble that is romantic date and ask her to marry him. And she says no. And she wants to pursue her own thing. And for a criminal mind, that's you, you can't compute that. So I'm just going to go to violence instead. But it adds what I think was a kind of an unnecessary complication to that central romance, if you will. Yeah, as, as far as I, I kind of mentioned the ending, I wasn't I wasn't that crazy about the plot twist and the reveal of the the sun looks like James Woods and all, all, all of that stuff. But you're, to your point of, okay, if this is all an opium dream, why should I care enough to spend four hours on this then? Why did you press point? play? Press play because I want to see Robert De Niro and this is supposed to be a great epic film. And I've, I've watched it a few times now. I, the first time I watched it, I, I don't think I was completely prepared for it being like the, the Sergio Leone type of thing with a bunch of people who don't speak English and like that usual thing that I'm running into that I, I auto-correct for in his Westerns. But in something like this, which is supposed to be an American gangster film, it really, really was obvious the people who were not comfortable in this genre. But people that are extremely comfortable in this genre still looked a little bit off. I do want to say some nice things, though. So I appreciate that like the violence is brought in this movie. It has some consequences, which is good. Again, this is a, a show about the music of Ennio Morricone. That score is amazing. I don't know if you read that piece where there was some sort of a screw-up by the U.S. D- distributor. I remember reading something The score that. wasn't eligible for the Academy yeah, Award. Yeah, 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 yeah. No nominations. I I think at the very least it would have been nominated for certainly for the score it looks good this the, the cinematography all of all of his movies look really good the art direction the actors are good there's some great like when joe pesci shows up i'm so happy when burt young is in the movie i am so happy that he's there when danny aiello may rest in peace shows up I'm happy to see him in the film. I, I, the, the, the whole union part has been criticized when it came out in particular, but I kind of like there's a bit of a parallel to Jimmy Hoffa happening in there, kind of involving the, I believe, the Treat Williams character. I like that stuff. Mm-hmm. But that is a very, very small part of a four-hour movie, a little bit under four hours. And I don't, I don't know, maybe the original six-hour version, believe it or not, if it had been kind of chopped up into either the two parts that were three hours each, or better yet, in this modern world, we it was it was cut up into ep- episodes and was kind of like a, an HBO type of miniseries. We might get the whole story. I might be in a different place with this, but mm. I, I have to review. It's it's basically the what's considered the director's cut version or the European cut that I I, I watched for this, and that's the one I I have to review. And my thumb is so far down. And I, I mean, I'm just thinking like being compared to, I know the point you're making with Edgar Allan Poe, but I can hear him rolling over in his grave right now on that comparison. Well, no, I, 
like I said earlier, I think going in, you need to understand or or at least, I guess, appreciate that even like The Godfather, you're, watch, if you're watching Michael Corleone. He's not the good guy. Mm-hmm. He's tragic because he's sort of sh- shifted into this role where Heavy wears the crown and he ultimately becomes evil when he kills Fredo. But these are characters that because they come from poverty and they have really no guidance as kids like they're kids from the street and noodles is a murderer by age 12 13 years old it it just seems somewhat inevitable that they would become broken broken human beings and that's that's what we have here we're seeing Mm -hmm. even the the birth of new york in a lot of ways or it's the building of the infamous bridge and the buildings or whatnot uh we're seeing the infant the infancy the infancy of a crime family that was really doomed from the start. The, uh, even we, when we meet them at the beginning of the movie, the, the family has been broken up and it's been brought back together by a so-called mystery. These, like, I don't know. Uh, these are not, not good human beings. And I think that's one difference between this and I, I'm comparing this to The Godfather, where we are on Michael's journey. We feel for Michael all the way. And even when he's, and even when he turns into a heel by killing his brother Fredo, we feel the pathos and the agony that he has to go through. That segues into number three. Here, because we see them as children, and and we're kind of at least with them on the journey. That when they start really doing evil acts. It takes a while. It, it took a while for me to go. Okay, these are really like I, I I've lost empathy for them, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're really really just sad, broken, broken human beings. And the consequences of their life has finally come to bear. We don't we don't even know what happens to the Max character. He just disappears. To me, it was an engaging story, but I definitely understand why you wouldn't like it. I didn't have a problem with the dialogue. One thing that Leone is really really good, and I miss this of a lot of modern filmmakers, is especially when you his wide angle shots and it just passes along to the architecture or just the setting and the buck and the background and how busy it is whether it's the opium den or the building on fire or downtown in a market the camera just lingers and it passes on before it zooms in into our character and and that's a lot of work to do that as a director. That's one of it. You know, one of Leone's great skill set is he can create these giant epic canvases, just to, like a a motion picture. Yes, uh, and that's really really good. And that's I mean, and then that's on full display right here. I like I said, I found the story engaging enough. I do like the mystery angle of it, but it's a nasty film. And for four hours, you got to ask yourself, do I want to sit down for this? You know, and this is not the kind of film that requires a lot of repeat viewing. It's like Requiem for a Dream in some sort of way. It's gonna, you could admire the skill and talent involved, and there's a lot of skill and talent, but do I want to sit through two and a half hours of, of intense misery a, a, a lot? And that's the same question you got to ask of Once Upon a Time in America. It, and unfortunately, I'm the one experiencing the intense misery in that one, as opposed to the characters in Requiem for a Dream. So, yeah, it looks good. I actually think if it was a silent film with that beautiful score and told the story that way, with all of the great production aspects, I think we agree on that from that point. And that's why I get I still return to Leone films because of that big cinematic landscape that he he paints. I did a I, I did get a little tired of the yesterdays. Uh, song playing throughout the tour. <laughs> and it seemed a little out of place considering yesterday's 1950s, 1960s. <laughs> kind of a little on the nose, not subtle. 
once again, well, memory and how we perceive memory. Wasn't it, and I, and I don't know if it, they, they didn't have the rights to the song or something. Like they had the rights just to play the, the music, but not the lyrics or, I don't know. Yeah, you're right. No idea, but it, it, is, it is played quite a bit and it's not subtle, Sergio. Not subtle. We get it. How do you perceive memory? What is true and what is not? But his his original theme, which he actually finished and, you know, did most of in the 70s and then finished off in the early 80s because it took a long time for this movie to be made. I think that alone, I mean, it, if I'm ranking or giving points to the music scores, mm-hmm. then this one would be higher but as far as an entire movie it just doesn't work for me look er- everything you're saying i i, I can definitely understand and yeah, yeah. I, i'm glad you enjoyed it and i'm glad that it works for you that you yeah. weren't bored by it and like i w- with my guests i want them to have a good a good time with the movies i'm glad look, that you enjoyed it but I well didn't. yeah like i didn't hate it i saw well, i mean i had to start and stop just not that i wasn't enjoying it but just life children yeah stuff like yeah. that but i was definitely engaged by it love the sets love the costumes but leonia needs to write women better but no one's perfect i guess well i again i if i could go back in time i would i would have him say partner up with uh, 1970s francis ford coppola who actually or or maybe it, even better uh, a jewish american because it's about jewish americans like that was a difference mario puzo and francis ford coppola are italian americans Mm-hmm. who wrote about a world that, that they somewhat knew about with The Godfather. Sergio Leone doesn't even speak English, and he's trying to write an American film. You know, in English, I know it would have been translated into a million languages for how he does things. Mm-hmm. But the English translation, or by whomever, by whoever did that, just was at points like nails on the chalkboard to me. I, I, it, it stopped me, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy it didn't stop you. So we're in different places, but I don't think we're... No, no. Like, like I said, I can understand you not liking it. The, the dialogue didn't throw me. I, I think I liked it more last time I watched it for some reason. And this time it just felt it was painful. What happens, man? Movies change over time. And also how you experience it definitely changes. There's been films, even, you know, it's, it's films that you that you marvel as a kid. And then you watch it again and go, ooh. So it, it is to do with time, maturity, experience. Uh, there's been other films that I first saw and didn't understand all the hoopla. And then I see it years later and I at least can appreciate what the filmmaker was doing and go, oh, okay, I, I, can, I can understand it now. So who knows? Maybe when you first saw it, you know, you were, ah, and now you've seen something else that you go, uh, so there's nothing wrong with that. It's the theme of the podcast, really, revisiting a bunch of movies that I had one opinion or another, and now I have this opinion at this age, and maybe in 20 years I'll watch it again and have a completely different perspective on the movie. It's a rough movie, though. Like, that's that's the it, one thing I would mm-hmm. say, is that you realize that if you if you hadn't guessed already, like, you're, you're really watching antagonist, uh, antagonists, broken yeah. human beings. Bad and badder. Ladies and gentlemen... And your Marconi.
Thank you, thank you. Thank you very much. Voglio ringraziare l'Accademia per questo onore che mi ha fatto dandomi questo ambito premio. Però voglio ringraziare anche tutti quelli che hanno voluto questo premio per me fortemente e hanno sentito profondamente di concedermelo. Yes. I will tell you what he's saying. Enio wants to thank the Academy and all the people who really truly wanted him to have this great honor. Veramente voglio ringraziare anche i miei registi, i registi che mi hanno chiamato con la loro fiducia a scrivere le musiche del loro film. Veramente io non sarei qui se non per loro. Yes, his deep gratitude goes to all the directors who had faith in him. Without them, he says he wouldn't be here today. Ma il mio pensiero va anche a tutti gli artisti che hanno meritato questo premio e che non l'hanno avuto. Io gli auguro di averlo in un prossimo vicino futuro. His thoughts go out to the artists who have never received this honor, and even though they work with enormous commitment and talent, to all of them he wishes that uh, their work would be recognized as his is tonight. Credo che questo premio sia per me non un punto di arrivo, ma un punto di partenza per migliorarmi. Per migliorarmi al servizio del cinema e al servizio anche, anche della mia personale estetica sulla musica applicata. Lee Beckman, I appreciate you uh, sacrificing basically the better part of two months to talk about these rather epic movies celebrating the music of Ennio Morricone. Sacrificing is, is, is such the wrong word. It, it, it's been a joy and a pleasure to talk movies with you. It's never a sacrifice. Well, you know this ever since we were punk kids there at Rainbow Cinemas, I've, I've always enjoyed talking movies with you. For yourself, I was always a Madonnas. <laughs> Yeah, 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 I, I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> my, my nostalgia is your uh, trauma. <laughs> it's all good, man. It's all good. This, this should be interesting. Starting off with Once Upon a Time in the West, how many points did you give it? Okay. Well, I, I kind of did it like rank and review from best to worst. And like, keep in mind, I, I enjoyed all these movies. I would recommend all these movies. There's some classic movies on this list. Mm -hmm. So I kind of feel that the films on the lower end of the mark don't quite deserve the numbers. But Once Upon a Time in the West, I gave five points to. The Untouchables next. The Untouchables, I gave 10 points to. And Once Upon a Time in America. Five. Yeah, so these are actually, you know, as much as it sounds like we're differing, we're pretty similar as far as the points go in, in many ways here. So, so I gave uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, I... 
I, I like it. I, this was a little bit of a downgrade experience for me from the first time that I watched it, but I'll revisit it and I, I'm hoping to have a, go back to that original viewing. I gave it eight points. The Untouchables, that was a big surprise to me. I thought well, it might be the bottom and solidly in the bottom. I really enjoy it and I gave it 12 points. And finally, not a big surprise, Once Upon a Time in America, I gave only four points to. I did give it some points. There are some positives, even though I came across pretty negative. But I, I just, I keep running into this thing. And I don't know if it's just because I'm making, doing more and more reviewing, where it's just I, I'm, I'm not liking movies that I thought I would like a lot more. And that's maybe a little bit more of a disappointment to me than anything else. So as far as the total points, The Untouchables with 22, and then Once Upon a Time in the West with 13 points, and Once Upon a Time in America is clearly last with nine points. So that's the one that leaves my movie collection. Lee, what would you like me to do with it? <laughs> I, I thought about this. I would like you to go up to a total stranger, actually, and give them this DVD. You can explain the rules of the movie if you wish, and just say you can, you, know, you, you can even pay it forward, and you can explain that this is even for me and you, a complete total stranger, but you have to give this movie to a complete and random stranger on the street and explain okay. to them why you're, what you're doing and what you're doing, and there's no catch. You just now have a free copy, a free DVD copy of Once Upon a Time in America, and at some point to pay it forward. Yeah, I like that. And it's first time I've been asked to do something that way. I got a really cool idea. And yeah, I, I, thought about, I thought about how, <laughs> what should I make him do? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I hope it's a positive interaction in the age of COVID. Some people don't like talking to strangers right now. Yeah, but good luck. I, I'll know if somebody ignores me or rushes past that's the right person, the person who actually stops and talks to me. So choose your stranger wisely. Yes, yeah. <laughs> That's somebody's good <laughs> Not one of the characters from one of these movies. We will hear from you again. I am looking forward to talking about a fairly famous filmmaker with you, one of your favorites in the not too distant future. So I want to mention a few podcasts that uh, people should check out. The Film Feast, Matt Bledsoe, who was on a few episodes ago. His podcast is awesome. It's something different every week. He's on Fridays that uh, he, he drops an episode. Of course, Rank and Review, uh, our, our buddy Larry's show every two weeks. He has, has a, a show. Uh, he's done, I think he's three franchise episodes with you this year. So please, if you haven't checked it out, great show. Every, uh, you know, every two weeks on Wednesdays, he, he drops. Uh, and, and then uh, Kurt Fitzpatrick's show, uh, Lifetime of Hallmark, where he and two other people comically review some Hallmark or Lifetime movies. I don't but know how they do it. Time in uh, America was painful. I, I can't imagine. I, I, I don't know how they do it, but each to their own, man. Yeah, it's a, it's a really cool idea for a podcast. Uh, again, please be kind to one another, be safe, and keep supporting the movies. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Jason.